a few things that many celebrities have in common. I want to see if you can figure out which of these celebrities, what these celebrities have in common today. Kim Kardashian, Kourtney Kardashian, Lil Wayne, Lady Gaga, LeBron James, Nicki Minaj, Madonna, Jay-Z, Cher, Rod Stewart, Flo Rida, Beyonce, <laughs> easy, easy, or I'll rebuke you right now, <laughs> Beyonce and Rihanna. What do each of these celebrities have in common? Perhaps maybe some things, many things, but one thing they each have in common is they have all worn a cross or a crucifix around their neck. The symbol of the cross has become a worldwide phenomenon and has been the most central and used symbol in the history of the world. And unlike other religions, Christianity is not a, a system of a theory or a system of a philosophy or an ideology, but rather Christianity at its core is founded on a person named Jesus Christ and on the reality of his life, death, and resurrection. And today what we see as we look into the Gospel of Mark, Mark's account of these final few moments of Jesus' life, we see the central symbol that changed the history of the world. If you're new today or if you're just jumping into us, we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark in which we will land the plane in two Sundays from now as we walk through it verse by verse. What we have just crossed over the past couple of Sundays have been Jesus being scourged by Pilate, the Roman governor in the province of Judea, in which he is scourged and whipped and beaten and prepared Jesus for execution on a Roman cross. And Jesus at this point has been beaten almost to the point of death. He has been whipped. He has been had a, a crown of thorns put on his head. And now we see here at these final few moments, he is led away from the governor's headquarters and led up a long pathway up a hill to the hill of Golgotha. Isaiah, a few hundred years previously, prophesied that at this moment, Jesus would even be unable to be perceived um, as the man that you would have recognized and known him. Isaiah 52, 14 says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. At this point, Jesus has been so deeply beaten that you probably wouldn't even recognize his face. His face would be so marred, his figure would be so disfigured, it would be hard to even notice and recognize who he was. And this is where Mark picks up in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. This is what it says. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. At this point, Jesus has a cross that has been strapped to his shoulders and has been commanded to walk up the hill on the way uh, to his execution point. Most likely in this day... The cross would have been two different um, pieces of equipment. There would have been the stipe, would have been the upright portion of 
of the cross would have been the wooden beam that would most likely be permanently secured into the ground. And then there was the patibulum, which was, imagine a, ro- a railroad t- tie several feet long that weighed upwards of 100 pounds that would have been laid on the back of the victim who was being crucified. It would have been strapped to their back and they would have been required to carry it uphill in which they would hang the patibulum on the stipe. At this point, we see that Jesus most likely is unable to actually proceed any further. Jesus is so exhausted. Jesus is so gassed, he doesn't have the ability to make the trek any longer. In which the Roman soldiers see a passerby, a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene, and compel him to come and to help Jesus take his cross and to carry the cross up the rest of the way. Simon, we don't know much about him other than he was of Cyrene. Cyrene was actually an African city in an African region, and for whatever reason, this African is passing by, is in this region, in this area, and finds himself, probably because of Passover, at this very point in Jesus' life before he is going to be crucified. As well, the author, Mark, tells us that Simon has two sons named Alexander and Rufus, Most likely he's telling us this because his audience that would have been reading the account of this perhaps years later would have recognized immediately who Alexander and Rufus were. Interestingly, the only other time that we have mention of the name of Rufus in the Bible is Romans 16 verse 13 in which he is commended by the Apostle Paul with several other um, leaders in the church in Rome. Here's what's interesting, what probably happened. Simon has been asked to carry Jesus' cross. He's the first one that would have ever taken Jesus' statement literally, take up your cross and follow me. This cross would have been used perhaps hundreds of times earlier for others who would have been executed already at this point. It would have been dripping with Jesus' blood and sweat. It would have been marred. It would have been beaten. It would have been used It would have had hundreds, perhaps, of nails that would have already been driven into it. And at this point, Simon picks up this beaten, wooden, bloody cross and puts it on his back and begins to follow Jesus up the hill to his crucifixion. Simon gets a first, a front row seat of the final moments of Jesus' life. And behind Simon are two young boys. Two young boys named Alexander and Rufus who are watching on as well and who are looking perhaps at all the details that are surrounding this as well. And they see what happens to Jesus in his final few moments. And here's what's amazing. Simon goes on to perhaps be a leader in the church. Simon perhaps goes on after this moment of experiencing what Jesus has done for him, experiencing the gospel, and goes on. And then his sons even, and we see Rufus in Romans chapter 16, is commended as a leader in the church. Here's what's happening. Simon is taking up Jesus' cross and he's creating a gospel legacy of people that are taking up Jesus' cross as well after him. It's amazing. It's amazing that the people that are surrounded Jesus, the people that we see that are closest to, have closest proximity to what is happening in this moment, they're changed forever. And they're changed not even just for a moment, but they're changed for their entire lives. And this is what we see in verse 21. Now look at verse 22. It goes on and says this, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha. This would have been just outside of the city. This would have been just outside of the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha, which means place of a skull. The reason why it's called place of a skull is because from the city, as you would look up onto the hill, as you would see the mount of their Golgotha, it actually looked, the side of the hill looked actually like a skull, and they called it the place of a skull. Verse 23, 
And they offered him mixed wine with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and dividing his garments among them, almost like casting bets, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. This would have been in the morning. Now, Mark's audience would be extremely familiar with crucifixion. Mark's audience, who would have been reading this perhaps a few years after Jesus' death, would have been very familiar with crucifixion in a way that we are not familiar. They would have seen this with their own eyes. This would have been something that would have been common to the people of their day. They were painstakingly familiar with it, unlike ourselves. And therefore, I want to help you become familiar with what exactly crucifixion was. Crucifixion was overseen by the state, by Rome. It was done publicly to increase the shame and humiliation of the victim as a way to generate terror in the eyes of those who would have been watching on. It was initially, initially reserved for those who would have been at the bottom of society, those who were slaves. And though some paintings of the victim that we see in our day show the victim with a covering of a loincloth of some sort, they were actually crucified completely naked in order to increase the humiliation. Crucifixion, we know that was originally invented by the Persians, but then it would be perfected by the Romans. It was a practice that had begun approximately 800 years before the time of Christ and existed as a common means of execution for approximately 1,000 years until Emperor Constantine, uh, after he presumably became a Christian and ended the practice. In order to crucify someone, the Persians would typically impale their victims on a long pole with a sharpened end and run it through the person and then stick the person of uh, the other end rather into the ground as an attempt to produce a long and slow death. The Romans were terribly wicked in this practice and terribly cruel and uh, had pride in figuring out ways to make this death even more gruesome and painful and humiliating as the years passed. Crucifixion was perhaps the most horrific, shameful, public way to die. Josephus, the ancient historian, speaks of crucifixion as the most wretched of deaths. Cicero, the first century Roman politician, said that Romans should not even speak of crucifixion because of the barbaric nature of it. And Deuteronomy even tells us in the Old Testament that cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Crucifixion was normally reserved for those who were foreigners, those who were outside of the Roman Empire. It was widely used by the Romans, especially when uh, Spartacus fell in battle. And historians tell us that on that day, upwards of 6,000 people were crucified in one day and stretched along a 120-mile stretch of highway in the empire. They would perform crucifixion in public places where people would shop in order to maximize the crowds and the exposure. It would be like someone being crucified in the center of the mall this afternoon. And the worst people would come to these events. They would mock the victims. They would make fun of them. They would make light of the situation. They would pick on them. They would make fun of the person that was being crucified. And oftentimes the family members were present. The family members of the victims were present to watch and to see and utter humiliation. Ropes would have been used to fasten the victim to the cross and then long metal stakes were driven through some of the most sensitive nerve sensors in the body. 
the hands and the feet into the beams of the cross. Crucifixion was designed to typically be a death by asphyxiation where you, your lungs eventually gave out and you didn't have the ability to breathe. The victim would often slouch on the cross, hanging in such a position that would prevent his lungs from being able to receive air properly. So he would muster up enough strength to try to elevate himself, to try to fight the pain of the nails and push himself up for just a moment to try to grasp another breath of air. Victims would often pass in and out of consciousness. Women were typically not crucified, but in rare instances that they were, the woman would be turned around and crucified backwards so that their face would be faced towards the cross because people honestly couldn't handle the sight of seeing a woman hanging on a cross. Some victims would hang on the cross alive for several days. Victims were often left unattended and even animals would come by and take advantage of the bodies. If you made it alive, perhaps for a few hours or a few days, you would quickly enter into dehydration, or dehydration which would set in and often delir delirium would begin. The body would be dripping with blood and sweat and tears. You would lose control of your bodily functions and therefore urine and feces would often be all over the place. And victims would try to end it as quickly as possible and would stay slouched down to try to end their breathing and to be able to die quickly. But in order to counteract that, some archaeological research shows that sometimes a small seat would be placed under the victim's body to keep them up so they couldn't die as quickly. Seneca the Younger, the Roman Stoic philosopher and statesman, he said this, I see crosses there, not just of one kind, but many in different ways. Some have their victims with head down to the ground. Some impale their private parts. And crucifixion was so horrific and painful that a word was actually invented to describe it. The word excruciating. It's literally, it means from the cross. And this is what we did to God. This is what we did to God. This is what Jesus saw coming. The Son of God. The Son of God who had existed from eternity past in the Holy Trinity with favor and relationship and harmony and unity forever. And Jesus Christ came. He knew that He had to live the life that we couldn't live. He knew that He had to die the death that we were condemned to die so that He could then conquer the grave that we could not conquer. And Jesus is led by the Roman soldiers to His crucifixion in which His body is crucified. Mark goes on in verse 26, it says this, and the inscription of the charge against Him read, the King of the Jews. Often the crime that would have been committed by the person being crucified would be uh, somehow fixed above the person so that everyone could see the crime in which they were committing. And at this point, Pilate had put on the cross King of the Jews as the only uh, guilty accusation that he could put upon Jesus. 
verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his right, and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, made fun of him, mocked him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They're mocking him. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The chief priests are the ones who are primarily responsible for this execution, and they come all the way to the point in which he is crucified in front of the crowd that is watching in front of the mob. They look at Jesus and they begin to make fun of him and saying, Look at this guy. He's the one who can rebuild the temple in three days. Ha ha ha. He's the one who is the king of Israel. He is the one that is able to save the people. Save yourself now, Jesus, and we will all believe in you. He's mocking him. Everyone that is around him seems to mock him. The two robbers, those who pass by, the chief priest, the scribes, they're all looking at him, calling him a fool. We'll really show him. He saved others. He cannot even save himself. But what they didn't realize was that the only way for them to be saved was if he didn't save himself. The only way for them to actually be saved is if he didn't save himself in this moment. The only way is if he would stay on the cross, because if he would come down from the cross, then they would have to go up onto the cross. And if he took himself down, they would have to go up. And so even in the middle of mockery and in the middle of accusation, and when people are telling him that he's powerless, he chooses with all the power in the world to actually stay on the cross. He could have called legions of angels to come. In one moment, he could have beckoned the command of all the angels in the world to come and deliver him in that moment. But he chose to exercise, he chose to exercise even greater power by staying there and staying on the cross. Because what it meant if he would come off the cross, it would meant that you would have to go on the cross. And he is mocked and he is shamed and he is humiliated. And Psalm 22 would beckon the same words a few hundred years ago. The psalmist would say in Psalm 22.7, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. In verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus knew this moment was coming. It had already been prophesied by the psalmist hundreds of years before the exact detail of what is happening in this moment. And Jesus, the King of the world, the God of the universe, is being mocked. He's being mocked and He's being shamed. The extreme irony that is at place is absolutely amazing. 
Cyprian, the early church father and the bishop of Carthage, he would say this, referring to Jesus. He was even covered with the spit of his revilers. When? But for a short time before, with his own spit, he had cured the eyes of the blind man. He who has offered us the cup of salvation was given vinegar to drink. He the innocent, he the just, nay rather, innocence itself and justice itself is counted among the criminals. And truth is concealed by false testimonies. He who is to judge is judged. And the Word of God, silent, is led to the cross. Jesus hanging on the cross, experiencing mockery and shame and humiliation for us. All for you and me. Mark would go on and he would say this in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour would have been about noon. The ninth hour would have been about 3 p.m. Upwards of three hours of time frame of darkness, thick darkness. This isn't just a cloud. This isn't just an overcast day. This is thick darkness that is stretching over, he says, the whole land. No sun shining through. No light shining through. It might as well be as night. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come uh, to take him down. Still in mockery. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. From the other gospel writers, we know that Jesus' final words were, it is finished. Jesus, after hours of pain, after hours of torment, after hours of beating and dehydration, Jesus, at the end, he has enough strength in himself to push himself up one more time to get a breath of air. It says with a loud voice, which means he shouted, It is finished! He yells with a loud voice and then breathes his last. And his head goes down. And Mark tells us in verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, the centurion, this is the Roman general, the one who is in charge, the one who has done this perhaps hundreds of times already, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. If you can go with me there for just a moment, darkness begins to cover the land. Some speculate that this was some kind of solar eclipse, but a solar eclipse only creates partial darkness for a few minutes. And a solar eclipse can't happen during the time of a full moon, which Passover was always celebrated at a full moon. 
And some speculate that this was maybe some kind of desert windstorm, but Passover also falls during the wet season. This wasn't natural darkness. What this was, hear me clearly, was supernatural darkness. And throughout Scripture, darkness is a sign of God's judgment. Darkness is a sign of the judgment of God coming upon people. And the supreme example that we have of this is in the plagues in uh, Exodus chapter 10 in Egypt where total darkness covers the land for three days in one of the plagues. Isaiah tells us this in Isaiah 13, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed light. Amos the prophet in Amos chapter 8, he would say this, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. What we have here in Jesus' crucifixion is the darkness of God's judgment moving in. The darkness of God's judgment rolling in. And notice when the darkness rolls in, Jesus doesn't cry out, My hands, my hands. He doesn't cry out, my feet, my feet. When the darkness rolls in, he cries out, my God, my God. On Jesus' mind in that moment isn't the pain of his hands and isn't the pain of his feet, but is a greater pain and is the pain of actually losing his father. And as bad as this was, there was something even worse than the pain. It was the pain of becoming sin for us. As bad as the scourging was, as bad as the thorns were on his head, as bad as the beatings were, as bad as the whippings were, as bad as it was hanging on a cross, there was even a greater pain, the pain of becoming sin for us. And I used to think that this darkness was like the darkness of God coming in, to, coming in on judgment of the people of that area, but that's not the case. The darkness was not directed at the Roman soldiers. The darkness was not directed at the crowd or the chief priest or the scribes. The darkness was directed at Jesus. Jesus, in that moment, was the target of the darkness of God's judgment. In that moment, Jesus was losing what He had always possessed. For eternity past, the Son had always enjoyed a relationship with the Father. He had always known the Father as Abba Father. He had always had sweet communion and relationship with Him. But in this moment, He loses it. In this moment, He loses everything. In this moment, He's being cut off by the Father. And though Jesus deserved justification, He received judgment. And then he breathed his last and died. And Mark tells us that at that final moment, something unbelievable happens. Something crazy, something bizarre happens. The curtain in the temple. This very significant, this very strong, this very substantial curtain in the temple is separated from top to bottom now if you understand the curtain in the temple and what it was there for if you aren't I'll, I'll share with you 
The curtain in the temple had been designed even a few hundred years earlier in the tabernacle as the way to separate everyone from the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the place where God's Shekinah glory dwelled. And the veil, the, 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 the curtain, it separated us from the presence of God. Now, except for one caveat, only the holiest man, the high priest, from the holiest nation, the Jews, could enter the Holy of Holies and only on the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur. And he had to bring the holiest spotless sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. And the curtain said loudly and clearly that it is impossible for anyone sinful, anyone in spiritual darkness, to come into God's presence. And when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain, the massive curtain, is ripped in two. Who tore the curtain in two? God Himself. He tore it from the top to the bottom, signifying that Jesus' death, that His sacrifice, the spotless Lamb Himself, the holy sacrifice is the final and ultimate sacrifice, the end of all sacrifices, and the way is now open to approach Me and My presence. And anyone who has Jesus' death applied to themselves through repentance and faith in the Gospel, now has access to the Holy of Holies, access to God to connect with Him. And now anyone who believes can go in. And Jesus is sent out of the presence of God and you are invited into the presence of God. Jesus is abandoned. Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is neglected. The Father turns His face away and He is separated from the Father. And then we get, we get all that Jesus had. The relationship with the Father. The holiness, the innocence, the purity, the righteousness, the justification. We get it. We, we all get it in, in Christ. And I, 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 this is amazing to me that what, what Mark does here Mark shows us the first person that goes in. Mark shows us the first person that believes. Mark shows us the most unlikely candidate who gets to go in. Into the presence of God. Into a relationship with God. He shows us it's the first person. It's the centurion. He's the one that's actually closest to Jesus in that moment. And he gets to experience closeness with God and the centurion responds to what he sees by saying, surely this man was the son of God. This is what Mark has been trying to show us throughout the entire gospel of Mark. Mark has been trying to show us and to demonstrate to us that Jesus truly is the son of God. He isn't just a Galilean rabbi or a peasant, but he is the son of God who has come. And Mark has been showing us this here. And up to this point, no one has uttered these words from their mouth about Jesus, that He is the Son of God. Only a couple demons along the way have referred to Him as the Son of God. Others have referred to Him as the Christ, but no one has made the explicit claim that He is the Son of God. And the centurion, the Roman general, he's the first one to declare this. He's the one that is responsible for the execution. He's the one responsible for the murder. He's the one that's presiding over His death and this is extremely unlikely because he he's a he's a roman 
He's a Roman commander of a Roman army. This isn't his first rodeo. He's done this perhaps hundreds of times. He's looked at criminals in the face and crucified them over and over again. But this time he's changed. There's something different this time. There's something that he hasn't seen and hasn't experienced ever before. And as he looks into the face of Jesus, when Jesus breathes his last, he says, truly, this man is the son of God. This would have been blasphemy in the Roman Empire. You only use this phrase, the son of the divine, the son of God in reference to Caesar. The centurion is a high ranking Roman official. He is subservient to the emperor. He is responsible to Rome to remain uh, allegiance to uh, Rome and to Caesar. But in this moment, this, in his, entire, his entire life is changed in this, this moment. He had always told Caesar that Caesar was the Son of God, but in this moment he tells Jesus that Jesus is the Son of God. And this centurion's entire life, his entire worldview, his entire identity, and philosophy of the world is turned upside down. And then we read this in verse 40. Mark tells us this. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene. Remember Mary Magdalene? <laughs> she was the one... Um, Oh. She wasn't the one that was qualified. She wasn't the one that anyone liked. She was the outsider. She was the one that was estranged. She was the one that everyone picked on. She was the one that had made a mess of her life. She was the one that had royally jacked up her life. Um, but because she had met Jesus, and because Jesus had changed her at Jesus' uh, darkest moment, man, She's there. And, and Mark, um, this is crazy to me. Mark mentions her name. For the rest of history, her name's in here. She'd been changed by Jesus. No one had ever loved her that way. She was always a victim of abuse. She was always hurt. She was always betrayed. No one ever had looked her in the eyes that way like Jesus had. And she was changed. Mary's there, Mary Magdalene, another Mary, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses, and another one woman, Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, these women. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. This is amazing to me. Only women are present at all three events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Only the women. 
This is amazing for a couple reasons. One, it demonstrates the veracity of the Gospels. It demonstrates the historical reliability of these Gospels because this would have been insane to put in the account. There's no reason that you would have put that there were women here witnessing this. The women are the eyewitnesses of what this is happening. Mark is writing what we are reading because the women are the eyewitnesses and they have communicated to Mark what happened. The only reason that we are reading what we are reading is because the women have shared the story of what has happened to Jesus at his most vulnerable moment. The entire reliability on this moment hinges on the testimony of these women. This would have been insane in the first century. You would never included this if you were making this up. If this was just a legend that you were trying to concoct a story about a Galilean peasant who changed the world, you would never put women in here because it would completely be thrown out. They didn't even have the ability to testify in court. And Mark puts it in here. Why? Because it happened. Because it happened. Mark's not making up a story. Mark's not trying to make up a legend. Mark would go on to give his life for this. Mark would die for this. We see the historical veracity of the gospels in these verses and that the only way that you would include this is if it actually happened and you were trying to be true and the other reason why this is significant is because women seem to be jesus most loyal and strongest supporters at his most needy moment all the guys are gone all the guys run away but the women are there i don't know if you've been watching the news lately but um, women in our society are often victims of a lot of things that happen unfortunately in our society and what's unfortunate is it happens in the church as well Jesus is a revolutionary Jesus is taking the, peop the people that don't matter in society and he's bringing them to the forefront of his story that's what the church does the church takes the people that seem to be insignificant, the people who seem to be at the bottom, seem to be outsiders, the people who seem to not matter in culture and society, and we bring them to the center. And we rally around them and support them and honor them and bless them because they matter to Jesus and they matter to the kingdom of God. And here it's the women, the women, the beautiful women, the beautiful women that are here beside Jesus, loving him and serving him in his most feel like we have to ask this question today we look at Jesus crucifixion it's horrific it's hard to stomach what happened to Jesus it's hard to even recognize why it would be such a horrific death I think we have to ask the question why 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 did this happen wasn't there another way this is absolutely cruel. This is horrific. This is barbaric. Why did it have to happen this way? Isaiah tells us, Isaiah 53, 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The for word, that term explains it all. It's a purpose word. It explains the reason. It explains why that Jesus experienced what he experienced. He did it. He had to do it for us. 
for our sins, for our transgressions, for our iniquities. He did it for us. And Paul would reiterate the same phrase in Romans 5, verse 8. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He did it for us. This is the King's curse. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. Here's the short version and I'll be done. You're a sinner. Jesus is a Savior. And the cross is your only hope. You're a sinner here today. I don't care what your GPA is. I don't care what your pedigree is. I don't care what your background is. I don't care how long you've been a member of X, Y, and Z Baptist Church. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what color of skin you have, how rich you are, how poor you are, how old you are, how young you are. You in the room today are a sinner. Sinner. But Jesus is a Savior, and that's good news. Jesus is a Savior. He's a Savior, and the cross is your only hope. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one brings many sons to glory. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. But his dying breath has brought me life. And I know that it is finished. And here's how you know if that is true in your life. You will go on to sing. This is how you know that the gospel is true in you. This is how you know that you've truly met Jesus. This is how you know that God has saved you. You will sing, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Jesus, we thank you today for the old rugged cross. We thank you for the cross that had our name on it, that we were supposed to be on. We thank you that you took it for us when we did not deserve it. You took it for us when we deserved it. You took our sin and our shame on you. So Jesus, we bless your name today and we praise you. We just say thank you today. We say thank you. We say thank you for the gospel. We praise you and we bless your name. Can we praise him today, church? Amen.